from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. What struck me so much about their experiences was they knew that they were going to fail most of the time. Hmm. Like, Michelle was not going to save probably most of her patients. Um, And in the end, Camus sort of reaches the conclusion that, well, listen, the thing that we learn in times of pestilence is that there is more to admire in men than to despise. And I thought that that was such a great, modest conclusion, that it wasn't like, oh, people are generally good or people are generally bad. Or we learn, you know, that human nature is fundamentally X. It's that, no, you know, people are a mix and sometimes they screw up. But in general, they're pretty much trying to do the right thing. There really is nothing super broad that you can say about America. This is a huge, weird country and, you know, (laughs) a great way to describe it. I'm Sarah Fenske. It was beloved children's television star Fred Rogers who told us to look for the helpers. When you see scary things on the news, he said, you can feel better by looking for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Kathy Gelsonan looked for those people during a bleak time in American history, and she found no shortage of helpers doing their part. Her book looks at the COVID-19 pandemic through the stories of seven people who stepped up. That book is called The Helpers, Profiles from the Front Lines of the Pandemic. I should warn you, it will probably make you cry. I wept more than once while reading it. But I also came away feeling just a little bit better about the world. Mr. Rogers was no dope. And Kathy Gelsonan joins us today to discuss it. Kathy, welcome. Thanks for having me, Sarah. So, Kathy, I really enjoyed this book. And I think its strength lies in the seven people that you let us spend time with. They're such interesting people. And we get to know them so well. Was it hard to choose these helpers that you ended up focusing on? It was hard to choose only in the sense that once I really started looking for people who were trying to help in the pandemic, and this was, you know, I'm writing this book proposal in March, April 2020. So this was like maximum flowering of civic virtue and like we're all in it togetherness. Um, And there were just tons and tons of people, you know, like there were people sewing masks for their neighbors. There were people trying to help in all kinds of ways, you know, putting teddy bears in their windows for kids to spot on their walks around the neighborhood. Um, So the real difficulty was in narrowing it down. Mm -hmm. Um, But I knew that it was important to profile someone, um, a nurse in the in the in the in a hospital in New York, because New York at the time was, you know, the the epicenter of the epicenter. Yeah. Um, And I knew it was important to profile the just incredible race for for the vaccine and the incredible race to to make more ventilators. Um, And I also wanted to be able to profile someone who was trying to fix the economic devastation that was happening all Mm -hmm. around us. You know, this wasn't this wasn't just a health issue. And particularly in the service industry, just millions of jobs disappeared overnight. Um, So I knew I wanted to find someone who was working on just feeding their neighbors. So you kind of had in mind, okay, I, I need this box. I need this box. Then from there, I mean, you're approaching your prospective subjects in the middle of possibly the busiest and most stressful time of their lives. Was it hard to even, you know, get to make that pitch of, hey, I want to follow you around? Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it was. And but I think that 
what ended up happening, you know, it could be hard to get people on the phone during during this time period. Um, but one of the one of the people I profiled, for instance, is this woman Hamilton Bennett, um, who's from Louisville, Kentucky, and currently lives in Boston and worked for what was then a somewhat obscure biotech called Moderna. Yeah, you was, might have heard of it by yeah. now. <laughs> which at the time, you know, back January 2020, losing money hand over fist doesn't have, has never brought a technology, you know, has never has never brought a working vaccine to market. Um, and so this woman who's younger than me, she, she was 35 at the time, um, she, she spent, she carved an hour out of most of her Sundays to just tell me about how she was running this massive vaccine program. I mean, it was her. She was running it. Yeah. This, this young, you know, millennial. <laughs> yeah. Like literally saving the world. And um, so how do you talk her into that? I mean, it's so clear from reading the section about her. This woman was so busy. She hardly got to see her husband. Yeah. You're like, give me an hour of your time. That's that's <laughs> not a real enticing pitch there, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what it's like to be a journalist. You got to be a pushy broad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you were pushy. <laughs> but I think, I mean, I like to think. I don't don't know. I would I would have to catch up with her. Um, I like to think she wanted to take the time out to pause and reflect on on the historic nature of what she was doing. Yeah, because uh, because otherwise there was no time and and otherwise it would kind of be forgotten. But she did. But you're right about the time. And this was true of, uh, you know, everybody involved. So Michelle Gonzalez, this nurse in the Bronx. Yeah, she's so busy. Yeah, she's busy. She's saving lives. At one point, she herself has COVID. Her parents have COVID. Um, But, you know, in Hamilton's case, I remember her telling me that she had been shackled to her desk like most of the day, and she looks up and, and sees her husband go out for a walk, and she's like, oh, that's my husband. He looked like he's... He's nice. He has a nice beard. But they don't hang out right. like, at all. <laughs> I mean, she's focused on she's trying to save lives, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's great. You got into people's heads. And I think really good nonfiction can do this. And bad nonfiction doesn't do it at all. Like, you almost understand these people the way that we understand fictional characters. So, I mean, it sounds like just hours of time of them sort of filling you in on here's what they were thinking. And I think some of it, yes, this is this is what they were thinking. And sometimes you have to interrupt people and say, well, you know, like, what color was the car? Yeah. Or like, what, did, when you got this email, was it forwarded to you or were you CC'd on it? So many pedantic <laughs> details. Yeah. So like very annoying stuff like that. But I think at least with, with everyone I spoke to for this book, they were very articulate and reflective about the moment that they were in. Um, and and the importance of what they were doing and how they felt about just the odds against them, mm-hmm. you know. So so um, this woman Michelle, the nurse in the Bronx, you know, she she's an ICU nurse. She's familiar with death. Um, she's just never seen it at this scale before. Yeah. And there's this massive PPE shortage. And she's in the union, so she's also, you know, she she works to protect her fellow nurses. She's fighting her bosses. <laughs> yeah. And she's just appalled at the at the lack of protection that they're getting, even while, you know, like, and we saw this. Rem- I mean, it feels so long ago now, but <laughs> yeah. but the ads running about oh, healthcare heroes, thank you, healthcare heroes. And she's like, great, call me a hero, but like, where's my, <laughs> yeah. you know, where are my N95s? Why am I reusing N95s? Um, and so I think, you know, d- she and others um, 
were wanted to really kind of reflect on what was going on and their role in this. But then also what what struck me so much about their experiences was they knew that they were going to fail most of the time. Hmm. Like Michelle was not going to save probably most of her patients. By and the, she was fully aware of that. Yeah, by the yeah. time they got to the ICU. In, in the race for the vaccine, you know, like it was great, but they were lucky. Like a lot of a lot of vaccines never make it to market, take years in development. Mm-hmm. Um, you remember all this from the coverage of the race of the vaccine. You know, the fastest vaccine ever developed took four years for the for the mumps vaccine. And, you know, you don't know until it's in clinical trials. And by then months have passed. Yeah. So all of these people are facing down the possibility of failure, the fact that just these enor- this enormous scale of death all around them. And they know that mo- they're not going to be able to feed everybody. They're not going to be able to save it. And they just show up anyway, which which to me was so that was to me the most profound thing was just, you know, being in this situation of not knowing if what you're going to do is going to help in any sustainable way mm-hmm. or in any widespread way and just doing it anyway, doing what you can. So that makes me think of Paul Carey. He's he's yeah. the EMT in this book. He was someone I really grew to love. Um, you know, he's living in Colorado. Everything's fine in Colorado. And he decides to go volunteer to put himself into the eye of the hurricane. It was clear from Paul's story, you didn't just have to get to know these people. You also had to get to know their family members. And I'm wondering if that was part of the pitch that you made, like, hey, I'm going to invade your space to the point that I'm talking to your grandma. Like, did you work in <laughs> slowly or was that like part of the initial pitch like I'm coming into your life <laughs> I usually <laughs> um I usually try to be a little bit gentle about those kind of things and just take it a little slow because these are difficult things to talk about um but one thing that that has often surprised me doing this kind of work is how much people do want to get things off their chest and how much, you know, if 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 you are respectful and they know that you want to tell their story in a respectful way, how much they really want to share. Um, and so Paul Carey, you know, I, like he he was a paramedic. He drove his ambulance across the country at the height of the surge when, as you say, Colorado was just not. And it, and it was part of, you know, Paul Carey is part of this bigger phenomenal story of people just driving from all around the country to help overwhelmed paramedics in New York City. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like hundreds of ambulances and they're coming from Virginia and Tennessee and Colorado and all over the place. And they all wind up in this parking lot at the Bronx Zoo, just ready to go save people, right? And yeah. like, and you know, I heard so many stories about like all these out of town paramedics who didn't know the streets, or like there's different sort of lingo when you're like whether it's a rig or a bus or whatever. Oh yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. coming from different teams and forming a brand new yeah. team, like yeah. while people's lives hang in the balance. Yeah, yeah, it's so, astonishing. <laughs> yeah, it was crazy. And again, a lot of failure built into that. Um, but Paul's. You know, what was so interesting to me about Paul and talking to his family was just he was almost the ways in which he did this work was just almost compulsive. Like he had to do it and he had to be there for people's worst days. That was something a lot of paramedics said, like, we want to be there on people's worst days, which I don't think is an instinct most of us have. <laughs> That's for <laughs> sure. Like we wanted to stay far from whatever the hot zone was. Yeah. These people went charging in. So you're writing this book about the pandemic, and you began it very early on in the pandemic. And I imagine at some point you start to realize, okay, like, I've got this reporting. This book makes sense. But the situation had not yet resolved itself. Yeah. Was that hard to deal with your deadline when a pandemic has no deadlines? Um, it's always hard to deal with a deadline. <laughs> 
<laughs> Fair. No matter what. Um, yeah, and I and I think that you, you know what makes it what made it tricky in this case, and and I I will freely admit that I was wrong about one big thing, which is I thought when vaccines came, like that was basically game over. Like it was going to be. You know, we were, it was going to take a few months to get it out, but then the pandemic was going to be done. So many of us thought that. You know? Yeah. And so to me, so like I'm wrapping up edits, basically vaccine uptake is, is pretty good. You know, vaccines are out. I'm thinking, OK, victory lap in the epilogue. Like we beat this thing. Yay, America. Um, and then you get the new variants. And I think that that uh, and, and the other thing about it was it it's hard. I think it would have been hard anyway, but it's hard to draw any big sweeping conclusions about America or human nature in the pandemic, which is where Camus comes in. Um. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the author Camus. <laughs> but before we get into Camus, I should mention we are talking today to Kathy Gilson Ann, and her book is The Helpers Profiles from the Frontline of the Pandemic. Um, and so this looks at seven people just doing their part to help others as the world just goes to hell around them. You drew on the plague. I did. And this is Camus' amazing novel um, from the 1940s. Uh, what about this did you feel was useful as you're sort of grappling with everything you had to grapple with as the situation is resolving and not resolving at all at the same time? Yeah. And and back then, it was it was kind of a cliche to be invoking the, the plague because everyone was reading it and everyone was for some reason watching Outbreak or whatever that movie was. Like, I didn't understand why people wanted to be reading about <laughs> But anyway. Says the woman yeah. who just wrote a book about the pandemic. <laughs> exactly. While we're in a pandemic. <laughs> oh, no. I've made a huge mistake. Um, but, but the plague. So I reread the plague during the pandemic. I was one of those people. And what was so striking to me about it was just the modesty of its conclusion, which was that, okay, you have this big fictional plague, by the way. um, And people, a lot of people die and a lot of people try to fight it. And a lot of people survive. Um, And in the end, Camus sort of reaches the conclusion that, well, listen, the thing that we learn in times of pestilence is that there is more to admire in men than to despise. And I thought that that was such a great, modest conclusion, that it wasn't like, oh, people are generally good or people are generally bad. Mm -hmm. Or we learn, you know, that human nature is fundamentally X. It's that, no, you know, people are a mix and sometimes they screw up. But in general, they're pretty much trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Um, Which I think is something we forget, especially in the context of this pandemic, because there is, you know, there are so many headlines and it is true, you know, you do have violence over masks and you do have, you know, counterfeit vaccines and you do have fraud and you do have all these people doing the wrong thing. Um, and the news is not the the majority of people who are doing the right thing because that's the norm and it's kind of boring. Yeah. But my book's not boring. My book's awesome. Your book is not boring at all. <laughs> and, and you make such a great case that, you know, reading the introduction, it really kind of, ha- I had to reset my brain. You pointed out that so many people did behave in really good ways, in really self-sacrificial ways. And now that we're so caught up on, on finger pointing that this thing continues to drag on, I think it's really easy to forget that and and you kind of hit that home. Yeah, and even today, you know, if you look at if you look at polls, um, Gallup just had a poll about how okay, you know, the news is the fights over masking and and all that stuff. You know, particularly here in Missouri, sure. but a lot of other places as well. Um, and something like sixty eight percent of people still report wearing a mask to leave the home. It's just. Mo- like and this is with widespread vaccines right yeah. it's just most people are trying to be cautious mo- like statistically most people 
are trying to protect each other. And you're not, you know, you don't see that because, again, that's not the news because that's just normal. Yeah. So this issue of the pandemic continues, and yet the book kind of has to wrap up. I thought you handled this in a really elegant way. Uh, You write, quote, in place of victory is ongoing struggle. Never finish, never enough. You can never save enough people. You can never make or distribute a vaccine fast enough or convince people to take it. You can never feed all of the hungry. But there are people who look those odds in the eye and try anyway. In some ways, is that that's the theme of this book. like that is the theme of the book because there's no that was I, I really struggled again for the sweeping conclusion about what, even not even human nature but American nature right like what do Americans do for each other um, and there really is nothing super broad that you can say about America this is a huge weird country and you know <laughs> a great way to describe it <laughs> there were there were 50 different pandemic responses and you know there's everybody has an opinion about what should have been done differently or what should what we should be doing differently now but yeah like when when these people were facing insane odds they just kept getting out of bed and they didn't even necessarily think it was worth it all the time yeah. you know and they they still did it like it, it wasn't a matter of they retained their faith the whole time a lot of the time they lost faith and they showed up anyway and i think that's awesome yeah, I think that's awesome, too. They are such heroes. Mr. Rogers was right. They make us feel better, and they're all among us. I feel like you might count as one of these helpers oh in God, that you're helping it. me with my trauma. <laughs> you had your own pandemic trauma. So oh you reference in the acknowledgments, no, you got right. dumped in the pandemic. <laughs> I did. Here's I did. a quote. I did not get the proposal I expected in 2020, but I did write a book proposal, which was much better. And as you reference so glancingly, this book proposal was all because because of an idea from someone you had never previously spoken to. Yes. You have to tell us what happened. Okay. I was really proud of that line, actually. It was it was, it was, it was worth getting dumped just to write that line. Well, I was, you know, I had a gentleman caller and uh, and we were we were living together. I thought we were like about to get engaged, but I understand that sometimes women think this. <laughs> you've you've learned now. <laughs> yeah. yes. uh, and it's not the case. And so anyway, we had sort of we'd had a discussion, oh, what are we gonna name our kids? Where are we gonna get married? Yada yada yada. You can see how you might start thinking yeah move in that direction mixed signals i don't know so uh so then then stuff starts to shut down and i'm kind of freaking out and i'm asking him like oh you know am i going to be okay are we going to be okay uh and and we just weren't he he dumped me i i went back to my sad little apartment and then i'm um so i'm upset and i'm in my sad little apartment and i get this email from this woman named bridget matsey who i've never heard of and she says hey you know i read one of your stories in the atlantic about people people helping each other in federal quarantine at at this military base remember that um and she was like i have this idea for a book that I think could be really great, and I think you should do it, and it would be about, like, who are the help? you know, it would be like the Mr. Rogers thing, who are the helpers? And so I called her up, and I said, this is amazing. I just got dumped. And she helps me. She helps me with the book proposal. Um, Did she know about book proposals? She's yeah, she's an agent. Oh, oh I left. I left out. Yeah, okay. I left out a, yeah. okay, <laughs> a, a key. Date. Yeah, but it's so rare she, to find an agent pitch a writer. It she, never works that way. She knew from book proposals. Yeah, she yeah. was an agent, and uh, and so then, so I, I work on the proposal. I'm writing national security stuff for the Atlantic. Then I get laid off from the Atlantic. So double dumped. And then yeah, so I got dumped again. And then uh, but then I got a book deal, so it was all good. So it's huge. And you came to St. Louis to write it. It came to St. Louis to write it. Meant to be here. 
for, you know, a few months. Um, and I'm still here. You're it's, still here. It's two years later. We are very happy that you're here. <laughs> I feel like Saint, Saint, this book could not have happened without your parents' St. Louis area home. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Shout out to mom and dad. Thank you guys for all the booze and good conversation. <laughs> but so this was your first book. I mean, you'd been writing great stuff for The Atlantic. Uh, you know, you're a really talented journalist, but a book is a whole nother animal. In our final minute here, big question for you. How hard was it to go from writing long magazine stories to actually writing a book? It's funny. It takes longer. There were a lot of existential crises that happened along the way. There's a lot more prediction of failure. But then looking back on it, I'm kind of like, oh, that was great. That was a lot of typing and thinking. Really? But you're over the the trauma of (laughs) writing the book. Yeah, I'm sure it sucked at the time, but I just don't remember. I just don't remember it. So does this mean that there's going to be another book in your future? Hey, if Bridget's out there and she has another idea. (laughs) You need Bridget to bring you the idea. Oh, Bridget's got to come up. Come on. Okay, I'll come up with something. Yeah, I would love to do. I would love to do another one, but we'll see how this one does. I don't want (laughs) to. Yeah. Well, we should mention, as you're talking about how this one does, you've got a big book event coming up. Um, This is co-hosted by Left Bank Books and this very radio station, St. Louis Public Radio. Um, Kathy gilson Ann and our health reporter, Sarah Fenton, are going to be live next Tuesday, March 29th. That's happening at 7 p.m. Uh, they're going to be here in our community room. We have a link on our website, so you can get tickets to that, stlonair.show. There's also a link on Left Bank Books' website. I think that's going to be a great conversation. You and Sarah, you're going to have so much to talk about here. We hope we can sell you, a, you can sell a ton of copies and then launch that next book. So, Kathy Gilson, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Kathy's book is The Helpers, Profiles from the Front Lines of the Pandemic. Again, I could not recommend this more highly. Please give it a read. Do yourself a favor. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association. Missouri produces wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details on the variety of products made in the state are at ChooseWood.com.